try that again. said it's the first Sunday in Advent. Advent is a season in the uh, church calendar. Uh, it's kind of the season leading up to Christmas. It's when everyone really wants to start singing Christmas songs, and it's when worship leaders start going, it's not time for Christmas songs yet, but we have a job to do, I suppose. 
Hey, we're going we're gonna to do a reading here. Uh, before we do our Advent reading and, and light the candle, I just want to let you know today we have a special speaker, uh, Pastor Bill, who normally preaches over at Celebration across at the Red Brick Building, is, uh, is going to preach today. So uh, we'll get to hear from Pastor Bill later. But uh, as we go into the Advent reading, we're going to begin our, kind of our time of settling into worship uh, as we do this. Uh, so you can keep your eyes open if you like to focus in on a candle. But if, you, if that's not a thing for you, then maybe you want to close your eyes try to slow down your breathing, uh, and to focus into what it is that we're doing. We slow ourselves down to, there's just something when we are able to slow ourselves down to kind of focus on what we're doing, that we're able to uh, listen to the Spirit more closely, to, to interact with, with the Lord in a more deeper way, because we're not jumping to all the different distractions. So let's take a couple minutes here, and let's kind of just slow ourselves into this morning of worship. On this first Sunday of Advent, we light the candle of hope, remembering the words of 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen. Will you join us in a moment of worship? You can stand with us, but we're going to keep this a moment of prayer. So if standing's not your thing, you can sit. That's all right. But let's maintain our hearts in a prayerful pose. And commune with our God.
nothing worth more.
Jesus, you are God with us. In this season of Advent, we celebrate that you meet us. We get to be on this side of history, and we get to know and see how you have worked in the past. We get to read Scripture and recognize the ways that you have moved through it. And we see your promises fulfilled. And in this Advent, we celebrate that, and we look forward to the promises you are going to fulfill. We look forward to the, to the completion of your kingdom on earth. We look forward to your return. We look forward to the day when there's no more death, when there's no more sickness, when there's no more COVID. We look forward to the day when there's no more racism, when there's no more enemies, when our swords, when our guns, when our weapons of mass destruction are turned into plows. We look forward to that day, and we celebrate that even now. Lord, we thank you that you meet us here. We thank you that you meet each one of us in the place where we are at. And uh, this morning, we want to specifically lift up a few members in our congregation. We lift up the Brower family. Uh, we, we lift them up, especially as uh, Amanda has lost her mom due to COVID complications. We just pray that you surround that family, that you comfort them, that you give them peace. We also pray, uh, we say a thanks that uh, Brian and Deb Dilo have are safe and well after having a fire in their garage last week and we just pray that you will uh, be near to them and help them as they figure out how to piece that back together and thank you that you meet us here thank you that you know each of our own individual struggles our worries our concerns our anger our frustration the things that make us mad you meet us in those places and you know those things about us and you are working through your spirit in our hearts in our minds, in the deepest parts of who we are to make us more and more like you. We ask that you reveal to us in our hearts and in our minds. Give us eyes and ears to see and hear what you are doing in our lives and in the lives of those around us and in the world. And may the world, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our community, even our enemies, may they see you in us as we walk closer with you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Maybe seated. Well, good morning, Watershed. Both those of you here on site, uh, up and down, and those of you online, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to be here as I was preparing. I realized that one of the things that I stumbled into when I first arrived here about two years ago, I stood to pray in celebration, and I included that day praying for watershed and praying for fusion, praying for Pastor John, Pastor Dominic. And so one of our regular things has been to pray for our sister communities, and today for the first time, they felt I was up to crossing the parking lot. And so here I get the chance to preach with those I've been praying for. I really am thankful for this opportunity. Um, Aaron and I and others as we collaborate and seek the Word, uh, the present Word of God in ministry together have really been excited to focus on these four verses from Hebrews, the introduction, the, the start. And so this morning, I'm going to look into both Hebrews as well as kind of the longer look for uh, our Advent time, and hopefully this will set things up one for the other. So let's begin. Um, I'm going to ask, press on to the reading. 
Uh, I'll read, set your hearts to hear the Word of God. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, the one He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Now, after He had provided purification for sins, He, that is the Son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, I thank you that centuries ago you moved upon this writer who'd been close to the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and you gave him insight into how that had all grown up from but then surpassed your revelation in the Hebrew Bible. And so now, having preserved these texts across centuries, we can open the scroll, as it were, translate, study, meditate, wait, learn. I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our hearts and minds to receive the full intention of your grace, working in us the character of the great and glorious Son of God. Thank you for our time together. Fill us with great hope this day. Be with those we love. For we pray in Jesus' mighty name and all of God's people said together, amen and amen. Thanks. You know, there's something about a theme that we want to set for this whole series. And I saw it as a mathematical equation. I'm not a mathematician or an engineer. My dad was. But to think this way, I want you to grasp this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is the theme statement through all of Advent. It expresses, if you will, in my mind, these first four verses of Hebrews. Jesus plus nothing, nothing added, nothing subtracted. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The writer here says that Jesus, that is God the Son, is the appointed heir of all things from God. That's verse 2. That through Him, God made the universe. Nothing is seen that He didn't have His Word in making. It says that Jesus the Son is the radiance of God's glory in verse 3. That Jesus had to, in a sense, hold that glory back that we might look into His eyes that He's the exact representation of God's being. If you want to see what God looks like, look at Jesus, because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The Son is not just the reason for the season. He is the Creator. He's the Sustainer. He is the Lord of all. It's my prayer over these weeks that in the midst of your life and whatever hopes or joys or challenges you face, you might begin to see in a greater, more awe-inspiring way the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the upcoming weeks of Advent, we're going to see how Jesus fulfills the prophets, not just adding up to what they said or did, but pointing to 
Him, the one who is their replacement. They spoke of justice, the comfort and conviction of God. Jesus is that comfort and conviction. He's the great priest, we'll see, that the worship that God gave to us was not simply extended but replaced and made in Him. He's the great king. He's not just the continuation of the royal line, but He Himself is God's authority shown in our lives and where we are. Because Jesus is God the Son Himself, the appointed heir, all that He is, if you want to know the true God. You know, this is also getting ready for the Christmas holidays. I tell folks, uh, I was too young for combat. I, I never went to Vietnam. But I did work at Circuit City for two Black Fridays. <laughs> so I want to tell you, there is a whole industry right now trying to get you and me to look at it and think that it matters, to take things that are nice and to make them ultimate. I want to tell you, if you want to see what really counts, look to Jesus, God the Son, because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Know Jesus, and He is more than just an idea or principles or propositions or doctrines. He's a person, a spiritual person. That's different than a human person, but a person just the same will, purpose, identity, distinctness. Jesus plus everything equals nothing. But there's a tension in this text, something that begins to pull at us if we'll let the Holy Spirit work. It's this, that our hearts want to add or subtract just something to or from Jesus. We want to add a little more, take a little away, make something a little bit different, Here's the tension. You may not recognize it. Sometimes it's even hard to admit. But we want to add or subtract. In a sense, does this make sense to you? We really want to have a Build-A-Bear Jesus. You ever seen those Build-A-Bear things? You kind of get on the internet and say, oh, I don't want brown-eyed bear. I want a blue-eyed bear. I want gold fuzz, not brown fuzz. I, I want this, not that. I want this. It's very easy, and it's the inclination of the sinful human heart to try to make a Jesus that fits us, a Jesus that we want, a Jesus that may be different than the Jesus who presents himself in the Scripture. Maybe it's the comfortable Jesus. Maybe it's the affirming Jesus. Maybe it's the demanding Jesus in an odd sort of way. I want to tell you, one of the things that I think is going to be really critical in the years to come is that we learn to recognize Jesus as He is, because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so we're going to need the gift of discernment. I want to give you a perspective that's been very, very helpful for me in my own walk with Christ. I had to learn to see the Scripture through different eyes. I trust if you're a regular church-going person, do you know the story in Luke 15, 11 through 32? In Luke 15, Jesus is gathered around, and there's tension between the barflies and the Pharisees, the people who were not living good lives, tax collectors, 
and the ones who are living up to the law. And Jesus sees that tension, and he tells a story about a lost sheep. And then he tells a a story about a woman who lost a coin. And then he tells the next story. Do you remember what that one is? A lot of times in church, we know it as the parable of the prodigal son. I want you to see that a little different. It is the story of a prodigal son, but that story begins from Jesus' own mouth as, there was a man who had two sons. There are two sons in this story, not just one who went off and behaved bad and the other who was a self-righteous jerk. No, it's two sons, and I'll give you the ending right from the beginning. Each of these sons represents a different way to be far from the father. Let's think about the young son first. He's the one we usually focus on. He's the one I love to preach about. What can you say? He was younger. He'd grown up in the security. And you'll remember he spoke to his father and said, give me your inheritance. That's the Hebrew way to say drop dead. Give me everything I want. And he took that money, went off to, I always thought he probably went to New Orleans. I mean, I lived in New Orleans, so I kind of know the town. I can picture him doing real well there. And just like everybody who shows up for Mardi Gras, it's a great two months. And then it goes awful. He ends up in the pigsty. And then he comes back and he says, I can't be your son, but if I work hard enough, can I at least be your laborer? And the father says, nope won't work. You're my son. Well, that's the story of this younger brother, and it's really a story of self-indulgence, trying to think of the father, but the father only as it indulges me. There's another brother, and you remember him. He's not there when the younger brother arrives because he's out working. Now, those of you who, like me, are older brothers, oh, do I relate to this? Out working pleasing mom and dad, being the one that makes them wonder, why did we ever have a second child? I mean, good grief. So there's this older brother, and what is going on here is he wants to add to what it means to be a son. He wants to add, well, I stayed home. I took care of the farm. I didn't have a party. I worked. You should be happy with me but there's more going on underneath there. He's wanting to add to the Father's love by what he does. And this is really an approach of self-righteousness. Both of these sons are far from the Father's heart. That's what Jesus is saying. And here's two different ways to be far from God. One is to be so caught up in self-indulgence and its consequences that you couldn't care less about the Father. The other is to be so sold on what you can do, the Father's not enough, so it had better be me, that you don't recognize the Father. The younger brother and the older brother are two different ways of being far from the Father. When you begin to recognize that there's two ways I can be far from the Father. I need to ask myself, which way is working out here? I won't tell you my whole story. It's way too boring. But I will tell you that there was a time in my life where I was kind of living my own. I had an idol of football at that time. I had a serious injury, and that ended football. My life blew up. 
But in the midst of that, when I returned to school, I, for three months, I was in a cast from my armpits to my toes. Boy, that was weird. You're having trouble with the COVID mask? Try a cast from your armpits to your toes for three months. Not even touching it. It was way past. But I got back to school, and somebody shared with me the gospel of God's grace in a way I could respond. And so I look back now, and I I begin to say, yeah, I was an older brother. I was a younger brother, but what I became was an older brother. And my first 15 years of ministry, I was very good at finding younger brothers and turning them into older brothers. Now, I didn't realize that at that point, but that's what I was doing. I was teaching people four steps to an active prayer life, six ways to be a happier in your marriage. People would come up to my preaching and say, oh, thank you for the practical Bible teaching. And what I was teaching them was how to justify your behaviors with a Bible verse and think that Jesus isn't enough. God and His love blew up my life once again. I don't seem to grow without something breaking. And I began to see that God had to break my idols because my heart had gone from a younger brother far from God to an older brother far from God. I was either subtracting or I was adding. But that's because at heart I was resisting that Jesus plus everything equals nothing. I had to navigate the pathways of my heart. Now, when I was a younger brother, I wasn't all that bad, but I was bad enough. When I was an older brother, my behavior was well accepted. But my heart, it wasn't until I could begin to move from my behaviors to my heart and see, oh, the reason I'm doing that is because I don't think Jesus is enough. I'd better add to it. Now, I'm going to dig a little here, and I hope I don't step on any toes. I'm new, so I didn't know that you were that. But let me kind of take some steps here. I want to give you two concrete ways this works its way out in the people I listen to and talk with and love. The first is what I would call the red-letter Christian. Have you ever heard that term? Sometimes it's kind of popular. I'm a red-letter Christian. It's a person who said, you know, Jesus is important. I'm not sure what to make of that Old Testament or this or that and blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to stick with what's in the red. You know, in your Bible when when Jesus speaks and it's in the red. Now, I'm really kind of sympathetic with that because I like the way it places Jesus at the center. And you don't have to get corny. I mean, in his steps, you ever read the book, In His Steps, Charles Sheldon? middle school youth group, WWJD. Don't have to get corny like that. It it can be a real serious sense of what is Christ at the center with this. But here's kind of the challenge with the red-letter Christian. Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So if I used red-letter Christian as a way to focus on Christ, I'm really sympathetic. But if I use red-letter Christian as a way to say, no Old Testament, then I'm actually forgetting some of what's in red. Do you see the, the challenge there? I've tried to subtract that out. 
Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 5, 39, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me. Why would I want to get rid of something that testify about Jesus? I, I often try to help people learn from my mistakes and be a little more polite. Um, one of the things you never want to say is, red-letter Christian, when was the last time you told somebody, go now and leave your life of sin? Because that's in red. Do you remember Jesus speaking to the woman caught in adultery? You see, the Jesus, who is everything, is concerned about my holiness. He's concerned about my security, my identity, my hope. But I've got to know the Jesus who makes himself known. The tension that I say is because we're all far from the Father, our broken hearts quietly work to alter Jesus to conform to our desires, to our comfort, to whatever it may be. There's another way we add to Jesus, concrete example. I call this carrot and stick Christian. It's where Jesus isn't enough, I need to get you down the road. And I first learned of this from one of my favorite writers. Her name is Elise Fitzpatrick. And she wrote what I think is probably one of the single best books on parenting I've ever read. It's called Give Them Grace, Dazzling Your Kids with the Love of Jesus. I can guarantee you, if I'd read this book when my oldest was about nine, all three of our kids would have saved so much money on therapy. Friends, you need to know, I want to point you to Jesus because I'm just a sinner who needs a big Savior. Listen to what she describes in this. I thought it was so capturing. Every parent also has a theory of training and motivation, an underlying belief of how to get kids to do what they want, whether it's clearly stated or not. During the 1800s, one theory based on promises of reward and threats of punishment was developed. Basically, this theory proposed that there were two ways to get a donkey to move a cart. First, you could dangle a carrot in front of the donkey, fooling the donkey into thinking that if he pulls the cart far enough, he'll get to eat the carrot. The second is to prod the donkey along the road by hitting him with a stick. If the donkey is motivated by the ultimate reward of a carrot, the stick won't be necessary. But if he's really all that interested in carrots, then the stick will be employed to get him to move forward. Either way, through reward or through punishment, the cart driver gets what he wants. I remember this motivational paradigm when I taught in a Christian school in the 1970s or, and early 1980s. I remember a cartoon of a silly-looking donkey moseying down the road with a carrot dangling in front of his dim eyes and a farmer seated behind him with a whip. It seemed logical to me, motivate the kids with reward or motivate them with punishment. Either way was fine as long as they got down the road. I'm sorry to say that I carried this philosophy over into my home with my own children. When they behaved, they got to put beans in a jar to earn a trip to the ice cream store. When they failed to behave, I took beans away. If one child disobeyed, the other suffered for it and would pressure the rebel to fall in line. I really believe that the carrots and the sticks were working well with my little donkeys. Sometimes she just really makes it clear. 
But there were several significant problems, namely, my children weren't donkeys. They were image bearers of the incarnate God. I wasn't ultimately in charge. He was. And of course, we had completely overlooked the gospel. Now, how would the gospel transform the motivational paradigm above? Quite simply, by turning the entire model on its head. She goes on to talk about this, put beans in, get enough, and you get, to get some ice cream. Be bad, take beans out, you'll have to work harder. See, when that perspective on motivation and on life begins to work itself into our own hearts, when we begin to care for those we love out of our own brokenness, our own hearts, and it works into family relationships or, or school, we create carrot-and-stick Christians who are thinking, oh, if I was just better, God would love me more, or I'd better not do this, otherwise I'll have tough consequences. I want to tell you the gospel, friends. There is nothing you can do today that will make God love you any more than he does right now. And there's nothing he can do today that will make God love you any less than he loves you right now. God's love for you is shown at the cross. He would pay that price without reservation. The Son who is everything has loved you. How will you respond? You don't need to be motivated to act so that you can get His love. You are given His love at the cross. So go and act. It's as if, she goes on to say, on the worst day your family could experience, that day when you hit your sister with a baseball bat and bloodied her nose and the whole carpet that Grandma bought for the family got ruined, at the same time, your older brother was trying a new science experience, and you know what he discovered? That if you can get a wire on each of the front paws of the cat, you can still stick those into the electric socket, and it will smell awful for a long time. It's as if on that day, the mother grabs all the children, throws them in the minivan, and runs to Captain Sundays and says, kids, there's nothing you could do to earn it or to lose the love. Get you a double Tommy. That's the love of God. That's why we don't add or subtract, because Jesus plus everything is that kind of love. Oh, she goes on to write, manage your children with the beans in a jar if you must, but be sure to tell them that isn't the gospel. And perhaps once in a while, just fill the whole jar up with beans and take everyone out for ice cream. And when your son asks you, Daddy, why do we get ice cream? How did the jar get to be full? Oh, you'll know what to say, won't you? Because there is one apart from you who loves you so deeply and fervently that he would lay aside his glory that he would take upon himself your brokenness and mine, that he would go to the cross willingly to pay a, a debt that was not his, to give us a life that is not ours. That Jesus plus nothing is 
everything. We call it theologically solus Christos. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It was over 500 years ago that a young German, his name was Martin, had been struggling with his relationship with God. He would look back on those years and said, if ever a monk could earn his way into the kingdom by his monkery, it was me. He did everything that was expected. He showed up at church. He did the rosary. He did this. He did that. He did everything that was expected. But he knew it had not set his heart at peace. So he knew nothing he could do could ever add up to all that he needed. And then as he studied the Scripture, he discovered that God's grace would give to him more than he could ever earn, and that he would receive that by faith. You may have figured out the German monk I'm talking about is a guy named Martin Luther. And that truth would get so deep in his heart that he could stand against the pressure of his culture, He could stand against a religious organization, the medieval church, that said, we control heaven and hell. And he could look the king in the eye, and he could say, no. He would say something like, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I can say no other. Here I stand. Friends, how are we going to walk in to the next years of our lives in this planet? How will we face whatever the diagnosis or the challenge is? I want to tell you, it begins with Jesus and Him alone. And from that, it flows in and then out. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let's take a moment and pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have called us to lay down our weary efforts and to not look at the incompleteness of what we have or do or are, but by your marvelous grace, you have instead presented us with Jesus. We thank you for your goodness to us, and I pray that through this Advent, you amaze every one of us in a moment, that there'd be this moment in the next weeks where we are just awestruck at such a love as this. That any God who would love me like that, He can also change my life. He can also give me hope in the midst of press. He can also give me joy. We look to you for Jesus plus everything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We thank you for your marvelous love. I'm going to ask you to pray with me as the music kind of continues. Just let this be a moment. And I'll often meditate on a particular prayer that our staff has written, and it means a lot to me. I'm going to put it on the screen there. And as I read, if you would just join me and we read together. This is a meditation on what the gospel is and how it can shape your heart. Together, because of what Jesus did on the cross for me and for all humanity, I am not my own. But instead, by the working of His grace, I am a deeply loved and fully adopted child of the great Creator King. Jesus has loved me first and loved me as I am right here and right now, not as I should be or could be. 
He has also given the Holy Spirit to work in me, transforming me day by day into his likeness. In that way, Jesus increasingly works through me as he brings about the restoration and reconciliation of all creation. Holy Spirit, help me to believe this and increasingly see the evidence of your work in my life, values, and actions. Let's worship a God of such great love. Will you stand and worship with us?
continue to praise our Savior, the one who reigns, the one who brings, the one whose love never changes and never fails. His faithfulness is forever. Let's worship him with all that we are, with every cell in us. The earth will shake and tremble. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. He's done all of that in Jesus. Go forth in that grace and that hope. Amen? Amen. Grace to you.